This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss important health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be Sister Mary Diana Dreger, OPMD. The OP is Dominican, the MD is medical doctor, and she'll talk about tips for how we can approach caring for our patients who happen to also be our parents, or more precisely, how to take care of your parents when they become patients. And sometimes it will try your own patients. Yes, that was a dad joke play on words. But first, let's go to a recent medical news item. And this one is from our neighbors to the north in Canada. Andrew, sometimes what we see coming from Canada is kind of frightening. Yes. You know, the, the Canadians have been trying, I think, a lot more social experiments with uh, liberal social policies. And I, I know, speaking to folks who live in Canada, many of the, the people who live there don't appreciate it, but the government has been taking a heavy hand in the wrong direction, I believe. And the headline from this article is that Canadian court tells doctors they must refer for euthanasia. Now, just to be clear, doctors can't, or really shouldn't, they can't ethically refer for euthanasia, although now they're putting in a, being put in a position where legally they're required to. So something's got to give. There's this movement in Canada called MAID, M-A-I-D, which stands for Medical Aid in Dying. Isn't that a, uh, a nice, soft, euphemistic term yeah, for killing your patient? You know, I, I got to talk to a, a lawyer about this the other day, and he was saying, you know, there's, there's really this battle over the words, but we, we didn't actually pick this battle. It's always been physician-assisted suicide. Kevorkian wore that as a badge of honor. Yes. And now they're trying to shift the terminology, but thankfully, even last year, the New York Supreme Court unanimously declared in the state of New York that these were exactly the same thing. So call it whatever you like. You are helping your patient kill themselves, and you are providing the means to do that just as though you owned a sporting goods store and a patient said that he was suicidal and you sold him the gun, you're prescribing the medications, which really should be worse. Ah, yes. Now, is there a difference between physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia? There is, and uh, I'm always surprised how many people don't appreciate the difference. I guess ethically, the difference is small, but the actual act, physician aid in dying or physician-assisted suicide, is where the doctor prescribes medication for the patient to take and kill themselves. Yes. Or to be given to them by a caregiver or maybe an heir to their their estate. However, euthanasia, on the other hand, is when the doctor themselves pushes the medications, usually intravenously, to literally execute the patient the same way you would someone on death row. It's, it's amazing to me that the court affirmed restrictions on conscientious objectors, that conscience does not trump something that seems so evil. And yet, in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedom, Section 2's first freedom is freedom of conscience and religion. Yet they're denying that very first freedom. And amazingly, they don't have the same kind of freedom of speech that we have, although their Section 2B says they have freedom of opinion and expression. So it, it, it's hard for me to understand how they can take away freedoms that they supposedly recognize. Well, it's, it's a value judgment. It, the, the judgment by the courts in Canada state that it's, it's not worth it to protect your right to have a conscience. But it's, it's worth it to protect someone else's right to force you to act regardless of your beliefs for their benefit. Uh, there was a quote that just floored me. He, it said that without the policy of you know, referring for euthanasia, access to care would be compromised or sacrificed for the most vulnerable members of our society. Now, when I think vulnerable <laughs> members of our society, I think of the unborn. I don't think of people who are about to die as being vulnerable because we're not going to kill them. I think they're vulnerable because people are taking advantage of them and probably getting them to want to be killed. You know, it's just, it's really funny 
almost how ironic it is that they're they're trying to call these folks. They are vulnerable, but they're vulnerable being because they're not being treated adequately. We know that most of these folks, 80% according to JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, are clinically depressed, but frequently, if not all the time, they're not required to have psychiatric evaluation before they're proceeding with these recommendations. And now you're forcing doctors to give these not only without appropriate safeguards, but also against their consciences. There is one more court that they can go to in Canada, and we'll find out what will happen. But in the first 18 months of this law, this medical assistance in dying, there have been 1,030 people in Canada who, quote, took advantage of it after it uh, took effect. But if this is upheld in Canada's highest court, this basically means that any physician who objects to referring for euthanasia can have their medical license taken away and be told, you have to find another way to earn a living. In fact, one article I read said that uh, unless you want to be a pathologist or radiologist or dermatologist where you don't deal with euthanasia, don't go into medicine anymore. They don't want you. And, you know, Tom, I got to say, I, I think we have reasons to fear even here in America. Although the court case is in Canada, and this this has not gotten to this level here, some of the premier, quote-unquote, secular ethicists, namely a guy, won't even say a gentleman, named Ezekiel Emanuel, who coincidentally is related to Rahm Emanuel, who's doing such a great job in Chicago right now. His brother. He said, if you have conscientious objections against for example, abortion or euthanasia or assisted suicide, you should get out of the business of medicine. You should be kicked out. And that is the secular ethic that we're fighting against. The intolerant secular ethic that prides itself on often being tolerant. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we're discussing news of the day and now moving on to a preventive medicine tip of the day. Andrew. I do have a preventative medicine tip of, I of the day. I am not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I come prepared. This We are kind of marching through the USPSTF recommendations, and this one is more pointed uh, to older gentlemen. Uh, this is screening for something called an abdominal in your abdomen, aortic, having to do with the aorta, aneurysm, which is a ballooning of a blood vessel. And as many of uh, our listeners will remember, the aorta is the major pipe that leaves the heart heads north for a minute and turns south going down to feed the legs. So this is your big outflow track from the heart, the aorta. And the USPSTF recommends a one-time <laughs> screening, screening the aorta for an aneurysm. You do this by ultrasound, and they recommend it in men ages 65 to 75 who have ever smoked. Oh. So that leads me into my top three things, which yeah, number one, if you're a woman, you don't need screening. Ta-da. <laughs> and if you've never smoked, you also don't need screening. Ta-da. So those, those are critical points. Um, however, my next point is that if you do have this and it, the balloon, uh, just like a water balloon, gets too big, too much water, and it, it bursts and ruptures, it is usually fatal within minutes. Uh, unfortunately, these folks don't make it to the hospital. And so as a result, if we can detect it before it bursts, uh, that's wonderful because not only can we identify it, but we also have a good surgical treatment to avoid the rupture. I think that was one of my first long surgical procedures I had to stand in on as a medical student. And they just said, medical student here, retract the abdomen and just stand stock still for three to four oh, hours. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that was a blast. Yeah, that's good uh, times. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've got to be prepared. You've got to know the case, Tom, what you're going in for, right? <laughs> and, and even if I do, I don't have a choice. Sometimes they surprise you. <laughs> yes, they do. That, uh, so basically, the way we screen for it is if, if you're a man and you've ever smoked and you're age 65 to 75, you should get an ultrasound of your belly to look for this problem. If they find it, they can fix it. However, my last point is that this is not without risks. And the primary risk, interestingly, that they've been identifying is psychological distress. If, in fact, you have a small one, a small one that's not big enough to be repaired, but surely will grow with time. And you need to keep checking on it from time to time with testing. Oh, sure. And so uh, they've they've identified that this will drive some folks crazy. And so it, it's a point of consideration. Some Sometimes 
if if you don't want to worry about it, avoiding checking uh, is one one alternative pathway for folks who may be high stress or they know they'd be prone to worry about this excessively. So it's it's not a complete recommendation without without talking about it. I definitely discuss it with your physician. But if you're a man 65 to 75 who's ever smoked, most of your insurances will pay for this free of charge. Wonderful point, Andrew. Thank you very much. And now before the break, we'll go to our medical trivia question of the day. When somebody is exhibiting uncontrolled, extreme emotion, somebody might call them hysterical. In fact, that ancient physician Hippocrates, from which we get the term the Hippocratic Oath, he thought that one of the organs of the body actually traveled within the body to cause hysteria. So the question is, from what part of human anatomy does the term hysterical come and why? But first, a break, an interview, and at the end of the show, I'll enlighten you as to the answer. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, a trustworthy source of medical information for Catholics and everyone else. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Thomas McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. Today, our special guest is Sister Dr. Mary Diana Drager, a Nashville Dominican sister and internal medicine physician. Welcome, Sister. Thank you so much, Tom and Andrew. Uh, she's going to help us in our discussion of what to do when our parents also become patients and, and might require our help navigating the healthcare system. It's, it's not an easy thing to do, is it, Sister? Not at all. It's not easy for those of us who are younger, so it becomes even more challenging for our parents. One of the reasons I asked Sister to do this is that she's the co-author of a chapter, uh, Caring for Older Adults, in the Catholic Witness in Healthcare textbook. And we interviewed the editors of that in an earlier edition of this show. And in the beginning of that chapter, there's a quote that says, there is no expiration date for the dignity of the human person. So, Sister, you know, as children of older adult parents, what what is the Catholic approach to quality of life as related to human dignity? Right. That's a very good question, Tom, because we hear this phrase quality of life a lot. Uh, it's a very secular term, really. And and I, I liked this, this quote that you had pulled out of there because really what we talk about in the Church is is not really quality of life so much as we talk about the dignity of the human person. And, and as, this point, as this quote pointed out, that doesn't go away as you get older. It doesn't go away as you get sick. It doesn't go away because you have certain disabilities. And so our dig- dignity is always there. It depends simply upon the fact that we are human persons made in the image and likeness of God. And so really, we don't, we don't qualify health care based on what we call quality what, what is called quality of life. And so I have heard from my friends who deal with patients at the end of life, something that is from another quote in your chapter where it says that patients are often led to believe that they're a, a physical, emotional, or financial burden on other people. And this perception causes them to make decisions they might not otherwise make. So the question is, how can we help our own parents battle the secular belief that dignity is unimportant or depends upon how, how functional you are or the things you can do? Right. So I think very much keeping our parents part of our family life is probably the, the key point there. All of us need to know that, that we are loved. Uh, it doesn't matter what age we are. We need to know that we are loved and we need know that we are valued by other people. And so it's it's very important for family members to continue close contact with with the older parents, for grandchildren to remain in contact with older parents, and and to you know, do do all the things that we would do to try to encourage interactions with our friends or, or anyone else. Sometimes it becomes a little bit harder with it when it's our parents because we think we've you know talked about everything we could possibly talk about and <laughs> yes, 
Um, but it doesn't matter. We can, you know, you go back to old stories, whatever it might be, but it, but it's, there's a way that we can continue to basically validate them, make them understand that they are important and uh, that they, they are, they're important for our lives. Sister, not only in dealing with your parents, but also in your patients, I know you practice as an internal medicine physician, so you get to care for older folks with, with comorbidities, a lot of times chronic disease. When, when people ask questions or they come, come to a discussion talking about quality of life and worrying about being a burden, how, how can we restructure that conversation or really, you know, change, change the outlook of that patient? Because so many people, they're kind of tied into these ways of thinking, especially folks that they, they want to become closer to their children, they don't want to be a burden. How can we reframe that discussion? Right. I think that one of the most important things for physicians dealing with older patients is that we have to make sure that we include family members in on uh, appointments, on our conversations, and and make it clear that everybody's sort of you know part of the picture. My experience has been that I think that when we can get family members involved, if we get them into the exam room, that they typically will make it very clear to parents that they that they are there for them. They're they're not seeing them as as some sort of a burden, and I think perhaps even for some, pointing out that you know the modern world wants to perhaps classify things that way, uh, but we don't. You know the other thing is to turn the whole situation around. When when we were the kids and they were the parents, we were quite a burden, I am sure. <laughs> um, but but I don't think they called us that. Um, they. You know, this is this is really part of what family life is about, and it, it's part of, probably part of the unfortunate thing that we see in in the world today in general. And that with the breakdown of the family, you know, not only are children not wanted, but then sometimes parents end up not wanted too. And so we have to really witness to something very different for for our patients. Sister, do you think, from your experience with? older adult patients that they often don't remember or understand as fully as they maybe need to what happened at an appointment that they have with a physician, say you, if you were their physician? Yes, I think that's true. And so there, you spend more time trying to explain things. You, you spend time writing things down. And, and like I said, if you don't actually have family members at appointments, then sometimes it requires some contact with family members. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where today we're discussing tips on what to do when our older parents become patients. And we're discussing this with Sister Dr. Mary Diana Dreger, a Nashville Dominican. Sister, this is a question that I think is very common among people with older adult patients. And there's a nice quote from your chapter in the book. And it's actually from John Paul II's Letter to the Elderly. He says that the most natural place to spend one's old age continues to be the environment in which one feels most at home, among family, as you said, acquaintances and friends, where one can still make oneself useful. So he says this, and yet we often struggle with that decision. How do we know when our parents need assisted living? How do we know when they might need a nursing home? What's the difference? Do you have any general tips how to navigate that. So I think each situation is very individual, and obviously that's part of recognizing the dignity of the human person is that each person is is very different. And there may be some individuals who would flourish more in one situation or another, and also it depends upon really family resources, right, financial resources to, to navigate the different possibilities. Um, there may be some parents who, you know, absolutely don't want to live with their kids, for example, <laughs> and assisted living is the right place. Uh, there are some parents who perhaps have uh, already looked into their their futures. There are places that are referred to as, well, various names, but one is the three-tiered living, where within sort of a closed community, they can go from independent living to assisted living to, to nursing home if that's needed. Within, within sort of the same environment, more or less. And so they actually develop a community with, with those people there. And some parents 
can actually, you know, plan for that ahead of time on their own. And that's really what they do want to do. And, and it's a way of maintaining their, their independence. And sometimes that's the most important thing. You know, at, at other times, there, there just needs to be more contact with, with uh, family members and, and family members have the ability to do that. You know, I, as I said, there's not really one answer as to what, there's not one solution to this question. But I do think that if we're going to be faithful Catholics, we have to believe that the Lord has a plan for us, plan for our parents, and maintaining a, you know, hope and and just trying to work one day at a time sometimes with the Lord as to what that plan is going to look like. I mean, sometimes that's what we do one day at a time. That's the aid right. doesn't show up today, so okay, I'm the aid. <laughs> yes. Well, sister, I love how you emphasize the individual approach because I know just in, in talking to patients, I've had some... Some folks who say, you know, the the idea that there's a place that I'm going to be safe, somebody might even make lunch for me. Hey, that sounds great. I've been making lunches for people a long time. I've I've had other patients who said, do not let my children put me in a nursing home. That's the last mm-hmm. thing that I want. Is there a moral obligation to, to try our best to not put someone in, in an extended care facility? Or are there times when really that would be the, the best thing to do? Right, I think you have to balance things out. I, I believe it's even Pope John Paul II in that, that letter talks about the idea that a nursing home for some people can actually provide a means of socialization that they perhaps wouldn't have in another place. You might have an older person who's sort of living with their family, but the family is off at school and work and that they're at home alone all day long. Whereas in the setting of a nursing home, there may in fact be interaction with other people. And that could be a real benefit to an older person. Oh, Sister so, Mary Diana, my mother-in-law, living on the farm alone till 96. She moved into a nursing home. It's like, who is this woman? She is signing up for every <laughs> different trip they go on, every different activity that they have. It's like my my wife is like, who is this woman? It's like she's flourishing <laughs> in this environment, and nobody would have predicted it. Sure. I think that was a really insightful remark by, by our Holy Father, and that's, and that's exactly it. You just don't know how it's going to be for, for individuals. You know, there's also the idea of, you know, just it, it, without, without it being just your particular home, it could be the, the location of the, you know, geographic location where somebody is located. So my parents have just three months ago moved from New York, from Long Island, having the, both of my parents grew up within the city, within New York City, and now they've moved to Nashville, Tennessee, at the age of now 82 and 88. And so that's a big change. I mean, culturally, these are two different areas of the world. And <laughs> yes. now, now there's lots of things that have actually gotten better, but, but, but there is a different culture to learn here. And, and there are challenges that, that it brings. So, but, you know, my, my parents prayed through that, and, and I prayed, and and things seem to fall into place, and so we think this is this is what the Lord has has in mind for right now. So it's it's really it's as I said, it's just so individually um, determined. I'm surprised at uh, my patients how often they have recently moved here at that point in their life to be near their children. I didn't realize it was such a a thing, but it seems to be becoming more common. Right. Well, I think perhaps with people living longer, I mean, what, what starts happening is they, you know, they get into trouble with um, illnesses and, and having to go to the hospital and then, you know, rehab perhaps after the hospital and needing some extra assistance. And so for, you know, there is a point where families really do need to become involved. And when there is great distance, because basically, right, the kids have moved away. So yes. then perhaps the adaptation is made on the parents' part, which is a, it's a sacrifice on their part, too. But, but at the same time, you know, they, they might realize that that's, that's the better thing to do. Well, we're having a great discussion with Sister Mary Diana Drager on when our older parents become patients. Uh, we need to take a break now, but we'll be right back with more Dr. Doctor coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio.
This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio where we are interviewing Sister Dr. Mary Diana Drager, a Nashville Dominican internal medicine physician about helping our parents when they become patients. Well, Sister, you know, one of the things that we talk about frequently is as we approach death and as our, our patients and our parents approach death, we want to make sure that they're doing so in a way that is coherent uh, with our beliefs. What if, what if the physician that, that the patient is working with is, is not really validating uh, the, the Christian and even Catholic way of approaching death? Even talking about quality of life uh, is, a, is a small thing. But as we move forward towards death, what would be the best things to, to really be thinking about? Sure. So obviously, important thing is to choose your physicians well, <laughs> and sometimes that can be very difficult in our in our um, insurance world and and all the other the pieces of of where we might be located and, and other resources. But but I, I I do think that if you know we don't feel like the physicians are really validating our parents properly if they're not valuing their lives. I mean, a good place to start is always just a conversation on the side. There's no reason why a son or a daughter can't call a doctor and say, you know, not as a criticism, but say, you know, this is this is who mom and dad are, and I'm not, not expecting miracles, but but we want to continue to support them in a in a positive way. It's really important on the doctor's side of things that we get to know our patients and get to know their history. You know, I, I often think that my first visit with my patient is usually my my worst visit with the patient <laughs> because I don't know them yet. Yes. But, but as you get to know them, you just get to you get to love them. People have such interesting lives, and I would hope that physicians taking care of our elderly parents have taken a little bit of time to just enjoy our parents as patients, and and to get to know them in that way. So, so I think you know, encouraging that in some way with with physicians, trying to get them to slow down a little bit would be a good thing. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I would hate to say sometimes you just have to get rid of a physician, but occasionally, you know, you perhaps do need to move on. But 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 we we can be there and we can support them. And um, and and then, you know, our our conversations with our parents themselves about their health care, I think, apart outside of the exam room is really important as well. And I know one of the things in my own conversation with my father led to him uh, preparing an advanced care plan, uh, not only uh, you know naming somebody to help make those decisions, uh, but also includes some uh, other parts. In fact, you talk about five parts that any Catholic living will should include. Sure. I actually would love to refer our listeners to an article that was written by Dr. Peter Morrow, um, Peter's an internist in St. Cloud, Florida, and takes care of largely an older population. And he's also president of the Catholic Medical Association this year. And but a Peter mighty good a, one, by the way. <laughs> he is, yes. He wrote a superb article in twenty that was published in 2013 in the Linacre Quarterly, which is the bioethics journal of the Catholic Medical Association. And the article was called The Catholic... Living Will and Healthcare Surrogate, a Teaching Document for Evangelization and a Means of Ensuring Spirituality Throughout Life. And in that article, Peter identified sort of five parts that we would want to make sure as Catholics that are addressed in our advanced care plan. Now, as you as you mentioned there, the, the key part is that we want to, number one, most important piece is for for any patient to identify somebody as their healthcare proxy. Sometimes yes. that's called a durable power of attorney for healthcare. But it's the person who's going to have interactions with the medical team if the patient themselves are not able to actually have that interaction. So they don't they don't make decisions for a patient who's able to just go ahead and talk to the doctor themselves, but but if the case arises where they're not, then this person is the one who steps in. And from the secular point of view, the, the, they're always concerned with the fact that this person has really had conversations with the patient and really understands what the patient would want or not want in any given situation. Now, obviously, if we're talking about Catholic health care and we're talking about our Catholic parents, then, then the church makes it pretty clear in terms of what kind of things we we should 
think about at the end of life and what kind of things are part of our normal care or, or ordinary care. And Peter does a really fine job in this article of pointing out several things. So we just I'll just kind of run through them. Yes, please he talks do. About the, first of all, that, that obviously there is a desire for pain relief. Now, you know, sometimes there are mistaken thoughts by Catholics who think that, you know, pain relief isn't good, that we're supposed to just suffer, and that's what part of dying is. Well, well, we can offer up some of our sufferings, but it's but the church is not against the relief of suffering. Correct. Um, and so, <laughs> trying to um, to address issues of pain, issues of anxiety, issues of nausea, those kind of things that may happen in illness are are very important um, in a way that's obviously balanced and not one that's actually attacking the patient, but simply trying to deal with those symptoms. The second thing that Peter mentions is that there's an importance in assessing whether treatments are ordinary or extraordinary, or sometimes the words used are proportionate or disproportionate. And that is something that we really, as physicians, should be doing all the time. Our Part of our guidance in creating a care plan for a patient at any point in life is, does this treatment work in this situation or have reasonable hope of working in this situation? If so, you know, could we proceed with it? And so those, those, those kind of issues can become a little bit different as a patient becomes more, more frail, more ill, a greater number of comorbidities, that is, other illnesses going on at the same time, because giving the same treatment in those situations could, in fact, be burdensome to the, to the patient. They may actually add, uh, you know, risk, higher risk of side effects. And so we have to balance those things out. Um, but that's what this point is about. And when we're talking um, about burden of medical care, some people talk about life itself being a burden and that we should be uh, paying attention to that. But what we're really talking about as Catholics is, is the treatment itself a burden? Yes, that's a very important distinction. So we never consider life to be a burden. Right, we value we value our life. There's a dignity to our life as a human person, but there can be times when a treatment becomes more burdensome than than its real hope of benefit to a person. And that again is a, can be a very individual decision. Yes. So you know you have two patients who are dealing with a terminal cancer, and one who wants to, you know, forge ahead with any sort of treatment they can possibly do to 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 try to lengthen their life, even if it's only by a couple of months. And yet there may be another patient who finds that treatment so distasteful, the idea of those side effects so burdensome, that they don't want to pursue that. And the Church allows for those differences in decisions. Sister, I had a question about the proportionate and disproportionate treatments. I want to remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we are interviewing Sister Mary Diana Drager. And Sister, is this where we would discuss with our parents if we want to pursue uh, resuscitation or a do not resuscitate order? Yes, that's a very important discussion. And, and I don't know as Catholics that we have that discussion enough with our parents. I've had that discussion with my parents because as a physician, I, I know what the, the risks and the burdens of, of attempts at resuscitation are. And with my parents being the age that they are, I, I really don't want them subjected to that because, and, and my parents are faith-filled people. They're not, they're not looking to try to get out of life at all. They're very <laughs> faith-filled, but, but they do understand that, that life comes to an end and they are looking forward to eternity. They, they have their hope in the Lord. So, so this is a very important conversation. You know, I think if we look back at the history of CPR, the history of resuscitation, this is something that was designed for use in the hospital setting, really in a setting where, almost in surgical settings, where a person codes in the setting of a surgery and what do you do? Well, in that setting, you have every single piece of technology available to you to, to be able to try to care for the patient. You know, the thought that CPR could be done on anybody, anywhere, and that's going to make them actually come back to life or survive long term, it is a real false understanding. I saw an interesting presentation once where there have been some studies done on television 
CPR. <laughs> yes. So, you know, movies and sitcoms or whatever they might be where CPR takes place. Well, the rates of survival of CPR in movies and televisions is extraordinarily much higher than rates of survival in real life. And, and I don't think we really understand that. I've, I've you know, heard that the, the rates are even as low as maybe 5% when you're outside of the hospital. And even in the ICU, it might be 15 or 17% of people that come back to life not without consequences. Sister, we yes, have about three minutes left. What are the mm-hmm. next three steps in those five parts to a Catholic living will? Sure. The next three parts have to do with provision of nutrition and hydration. And that's simply a, a way of saying that basically under you know normal circumstances, providing food and, and fluids are part of normal care. And, and sometimes, again, you have to balance this out, but sometimes that requires unusual routes of administration, um, perhaps to get through a person through something. But, but there, there are, in, in general, food and, and fluids are not considered themselves to be extraordinary care. We obviously would want to make sure that in our plan that we make it clear that we do not want euthanasia, that we are not looking for physician-assisted suicide or any form of uh, intentional death. Um, and then most important, really, I think, is that part of our, our advanced care plan has to do with our spiritual care. You know, we want, we want a priest to be available. We want people to pray with us. Um, we want the sacraments if we can receive them. And uh, and really, I think that's probably this is probably one of the most important pieces just for for us outside of all the the medical or the health environments is that really we should understand and talk to our parents about end of life care relative to to what our faith beliefs are about eternal life that this isn't all there is. One point your chapter made along this line to me was, I think, very important that most people don't realize, is that each person has a right to prepare for his or her death while fully conscious. So while being treated, a patient should not be made unconscious unless there's an extremely compelling reason. Right. Indeed. I mean, we we ought to maintain, I mean, our rational powers are really what distinguish us from the rest of of the animal world, right? And so this is part of respecting our human dignity. Do you have a last point that you'd like to make for our listeners? You know, we all need to walk this way with the Lord, and I think that's the most important part. And if as, if as kids, as our parents get older, if we're not used to having some of these conversations, then we have to start, you know, pushing ourselves to have them. And not just conversations about health, but conversations about our spiritual life as well, about about the faith, about the Lord. Yeah. Sister, I, th- I think there's a few things that we alluded to, including artificial nutrition and hydration, CPR. We'd love to have you back sometime to really dig through those to give our listeners some, some guidance. Thank you, sure. Sister Mary Diana Drager, Dr. Mary Diana Drager. Thanks. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally. And... Uh, We are providing for you a trustworthy source of medical information for Catholics and everyone else. This is Dr. Doctor. We're your hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, and our guests discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. And we've come to my favorite moment of the show, and that is revealing the answer to the medical trivia question. This question to be repeated, so you get another chance to think about it, is when somebody is exhibiting uncontrolled extreme emotion, we might label them as hysterical. Hippocrates, father of medicine 2,400 years ago, thought that one of the organs of the body actually traveled within the body to cause hysteria. And I could tell you, if this organ was traveling in my body, I truly would be historical. So my question, (laughs) hysterical, well, it would be historical too. It could be written up in a journal. So from what part of human anatomy does the term hysterical come? I I have a feeling that some of our listeners might might take this personally, Tom. Uh, They might, but uh, I I have some warm words for them. The word hysterical (laughs) comes from an ancient Greek word, hysterikos, meaning to suffer in the uterus. 
So the word historical, hysterical, the root word is actually uterus, or he thought there was a wandering womb in women that was making them hysterical. And in fact, hysteria was, no longer is, was a medical diagnosis in the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Psychiatric Disease until 1980. So up until that time, it was thought to be somebody who took a lot of psychologic stress and it came out as physical symptoms like selective amnesia, forgetting things, or being very volatile with emotions or exhibiting overdramatic attention-seeking behavior. Now now we have other names for, for all of those, and they're kind of parsed out, which probably is a lot more useful clinically. But, uh, yeah, the poor womb really took a lot of Yeah, lot the of wandering womb or the movement of the uterus caused hysteria. And Hippocrates, 2,400 years ago, thought it only applied to women. I must admit I have met or maybe even been uh, a hysterical <laughs> man at times. In fact, oh, here's the quote from him. He said, the restless and migratory uterus is the cause and Hippocrates identifies the cause of the imposition as poisonous, stagnant humors, which, due to an inadequate use of the uterus, have never been expelled. In other words, if the uterus has not been pregnant, certain humors built up in the body. Thanks be to God, medicine has come quite a long way since the time of Hippocrates. you got to wonder how they got to these points, you know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I'm just oh, glad I'm in goodness. the 21st century and wasn't in the 5th century B.C. learning medicine. So for the rest of the show, I thought we'd talk about something that doesn't get much attention because it is quite a somber topic. And you might think I'm saying physician-assisted suicide, which is out there and is a somber topic. But this topic takes out the word assisted, and it's just the topic of physician suicide. Yeah, it's a, it's a very sad thing. And unfortunately, it's something that, while it doesn't get a lot of attention, it is extremely common. In uh, January of 2018, the Washington Post printed an article, but it was uh, by a family physician from Eugene, Oregon, named Pamela Weibel. And she is on a crusade, a good crusade, to help make people not only aware of this, but to help hospitals and medical groups do things so that doctors don't feel like suicide is their only option. I, I've heard recently they they always used to kind of, you know, sometimes even in jest, point out that dentists had the highest suicide rate, but they were overtaken recently by medical doctors. I did not know so that. So that's, that's the highest suicide rate, uh, you know, per capita for a profession. Wow. And the highest rate of burnout, which is probably related to that. Uh, you know, in this article, they point out s several important things. That one, doctors have had high suicide rates, not just for the last 10, 25, or 50 years, but for over 150 years. And still, the root causes have not been examined and addressed. I've, I've heard even that looking at folks before they go into medical school and then as they progress through training, medicine, medical school, residency, and then into practice, the longer you're exposed to medicine, almost like an exposure, the higher your risk, such that when before you enter medical school, the risk of, of a future doctor might be half or a third of the suicide risk of your average person. But then as you go through training, by the time you finish your training, it's about six times higher than average. So that means that training to be a physician or being a physician is a high-risk activity, it, like it, bungee jumping or skydiving. It's pretty scary. That is frightening. I'm, I'm glad that my um, life insurance company hasn't taken that into consideration. All you actuaries out there listening, just, just cover your ears right now. Now, Physician suicide is a public health crisis in that every year at least a million American patients lose their physician to suicide. That's staggering. I have not lost a colleague to suicide. Have you known any in your training, Andrew? Not not by, I would say, first degree of separation, but I've definitely by second degree. Yes. It's something that you, you hear about frequently. And unfortunately, maybe the reason I didn't know them that well is because they were kind of on this depressive path and, and unfortunately uh, never had the opportunity to get to know them. Uh, not surprisingly, 
Um, men are much more successful at completing a suicide attempt. In fact, in a seven to one ratio versus um, our female counterparts. And the highest risk among all physician types are anesthesiologists who are men and they most commonly um, have drugs at their disposal and they use them at high doses to kill themselves. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we are now discussing uh, somewhat of an epidemic of physician suicide, not physician-assisted suicide, that is often hidden from the public or, or hushed up. Many doctors actually commit suicide in hospitals. That, that is when they hit their low points. And often these doctors seemed very happy or upbeat just hours or minutes before committing suicide. People are usually surprised when this happens. Nobody sees it coming because almost assuredly if they did, they would try and stop it in some way. Uh, when you look at why doctors might do this, I think a lot of patients don't realize that doctors are kind of ordinary people just like them. We've just gone through a, a lot of brutal training but we're still people with the same needs, desires, wants, dislikes uh, that they might have. And one of the things this article points out is that patient deaths really hurt doctors. It's, it's something that you, you definitely take on ownership of a patient, you know, when you accept them into your care and you're giving them rec recommendations. And obviously, every life ends with death. But when, when you have that responsibility, it it's your job to try and help them as best you can. And ultimately, we know that everyone will die eventually. However, when you're the doctor, it doesn't make it any easier because you want to say, you know, what what could I have done different? Exactly. You know, I, I wish there was something. I wish I saw that sooner. And then I don't know any other profession where you're never allowed to, to make a mistake. That puts high pressure on physicians. And so malpractice cases cause an inordinate amount of stress. I know this from personal experience. It is devastating to a physician. I don't know that patients, I don't know that lawyers have a clue as to how much it really affects us. We might take care of, you know, thousands of patients who never sue us, but all our focus is on that one suit hanging over our head. Well, and, it, and it's tough too, because most doctors during this it's it's not their only thing. They still have to continue practicing and trying to provide high-quality care to the thousands of other people that they're responsible for. I, I read an article recently that by the age of 50 or 55, I think, uh, the average doctor will have been sued twice already. So it's something that really is ubiquitous in, in the medical profession. And so that's definitely, when you're looking at physician well-being, trying to entice folks to become doctors and to remain doctors. So many people retire early due to stress. I can't help but think that tort reform is one of the things that we have to continue looking at. And then, of course, assembly line medicine kills doctors. That's what it says here. You know, it says that, um, you know, sometimes we only have 15 minutes to see complicated patients. Sometimes it's honestly less than that. And that's incredibly stressful when you're trying to do your best and you just are set up to fail in this system that we have. I always tell, tell well, not always, I guess. I, I was talking to folks recently just about that 15-minute slot thing. And um, it's it's tough because, you know, if, if you took all the time that you thought was required to do the very best job and to be the most thorough, you'd practically spend at least a half hour, hour with every single patient. However, as a consequence, you could not stay in business. No. Knowing, knowing this from private practice, you've, you've got employees and then all of the general bills of running a business. So literally, it's a rock and a hard place in trying to find a balance there where you're doing excellent care as best you can, but also able to keep the lights on. It's a very tough thing to do. And then in what other field is somebody allowed to work for 24 hours straight? There is no other field, and yet, how many are more important than your medical care? Imagine if, if you were told, we're getting on this transatlantic flight tonight. I hope you all are well-rested. I've been up for 24 hours. We're going to just take off in a minute. So everybody, <laughs> hold your horses. You know. But in reality, doctors are really demanded to do this frequently. 
I don't know how many dozens and dozens, many 24-hour shifts I've worked. I mean, it's it's something that's part of training, and they're trying to get away from it, but it's really so ingrained in the culture of medicine, and it's it's definitely a safety hazard. It, it is. Uh, there are so many other things we could discuss here, but just to raise awareness, your doctors need your prayers. Well, thank you for being with us today on Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally. We're signing off until next time. Please do while we're talking about physician well-being, please do pray for us. Pray for the, the show, the success of our show, and also pray, pray for our individual patients that we get to care for every day. And remember, your medical decisions do have profound consequences. So please, choose wisely and choose Catholic. Next week on Dr. Doctor, our own Dr. Andrew Mullally will give an update on the push for physician-assisted suicide in the United States what the church teaches about the practice, and how physicians and patients can advocate for respect of all human dignity. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1, or find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss a new episode, and leave us a rating and review to make it easier for others to find the show. For more information, visit RedeemerRadio.com doctor. Many support a woman's right to choose, but sadly, few know the consequences of those choices. The Catholic Medical Association supports your right to know. Women who have had an abortion are at higher risk for complications in future pregnancies, especially premature birth and low birth weight of their children. This puts their babies at risk for breathing problems, feeding problems, infections, heart problems, anemia, and eye problems. To find out more, visit cathmed.org. Anyone can become a member of the Catholic Medical Association. Join one of the 100 guilds nationwide or help develop a new guild in your area. You'll get informative publications with the latest trends in medicine and bioethics and the earliest details about the Catholic Medical Association's 87th Annual Educational Conference coming to Dallas in the fall of 2018. Just click on the membership tab today at cathmed.org. That's cathmed.org.